Hey there, it's Ron. Thank you so much to everyone who came out to our shows this month, especially those of you who piled in for the anniversary show in Denver. It's a real treat to mark our seventh year with all of you, so thanks again. We have a bunch of special shows coming up in the near future. In addition to our regular monthly shows, we're hosting a special edition of The Narrators at Dink, the Denver Independent Comic Expo, at 5 p.m. on Saturday, April 8th at the historic McNichols Building in Civic Center Park. The show is free with admission to the expo. Also hosting a fundraiser for Denver Zine Fest in collaboration with our good friends at the Denver Zine Library on Tuesday, April 11th at Bumport Theater. Come hear stories from local zinesters, make your very own mini zine, and get a chance to share your zine in front of the audience. Keep your eyeballs duct taped to our Facebook page or website for more details. And of course, in addition to those special events, our next regular monthly shows will be on April 11th in San Diego and April 19th in Denver. The theme will be Jinx. See you there. Next storyteller. Our next storyteller. This next storyteller. Our next storyteller. Welcome to the Narrators Podcast. This podcast collects stories that were told at the Narrators, a monthly storytelling event that features people telling true stories based on a theme. Today's story comes from Megan DePonso, and <laughs> oh man, it's a doozy. Uh, <laughs> Uh, Megan is a Denver comedian and the chief of 5280comedy.com, a top resource for all things comedy in Denver. This story was recorded live on January 18th, 2017 at Buntport Theater in Denver, Colorado. The theme of the evening was Dropping the Ball. Oh, man. Uh, this is the part of the show where 20-something female comics uh, with bangs bear their soul about their teenage years, and I'm going to continue that. <laughs> dropping the ball. Uh, dropping the ball in t- in, like, implies two tiers of failure. Uh, the first being that someone was relying on you and, and their disappointment, and the second being your own personal failure and defeat. And uh, having someone depend on you and failing stings. It stings double, it hurts more. It literally hurts more than one person. And I think lying is very similar. Um, I think lying implies two wrongs. First, the act of wrongdoing, and second, uh, the lie to cover it up. Uh, I'm a liar. I am a liar. And I say that in the way that a recovering alcoholic is always an alcoholic. I am a recovering pathological liar. To no fault of my parents, uh, they tried and tried from the minute the behavior began. As a little kid, it was right versus wrong. Right was the truth, lying was wrong. Come middle school, they tried to level with me, explaining that people don't like liars. People don't befriend liars. Liars are losers. Smart parents. They hit, they hit a preteen where it hurts. Popularity. <laughs> uh, by the beginning of high school, their mission to stop my habitual lying was the only thing the two shared in common. Their marriage had failed, divorced, and they were divided on every issue. Um, the, my lying was their only common ground, and they were done being nice about it. The argument changed again, this time explaining someday I was going to need them, need my parents to bail me out, have my back. And they wouldn't because they didn't trust their daughter. They pleaded and said that if I stopped now, if I changed right now, their trust could be earned back, but I didn't have it anymore. Like they were giving me a bank account already overdrafted and racking up fees. And all my stupid hormonal teenager asshole mind could conjure up was the translation of their plea into, I'm free. I was free. I was free to be a monster. <laughs> but I was raised Irish Catholic, so there'd still be guilt. I just would repackage it and take it out on everyone else around me, you know? Uh, in my mind, if I was working, supporting myself, getting A's in school and not getting arrested, I couldn't, I couldn't hurt anybody. I couldn't be letting anyone down. And if I was, it was their problem. You know, like a shithead. (laughs) 
My whole life I was the black sheep, the fuck up. Uh, raise your hand if you're the fuck up of your family. Yeah, there it is, there's my people. My people who understand the hole that was built. <sighs> I was typecasted for the role of fuck up before I really had any, ever, ever done anything wrong because fuck ups of my mom's friend's family, they were having babies and court dates at 16 and I had a clean record and a bright future. I hadn't screwed up enough to earn my title yet. I hadn't dropped the ball yet until October 21st, 2009. Yeah, it's one of those stories with a date <laughs> because there's a document out there that I had to sign acknowledging this date. Uh, sophomore year of college, I partied because school was easy and I liked drugs, but like just the fun ones, weed, acid, shrooms, Adderall every now and then to make a couple bucks off of writing papers for my richer, lazier, dumber classmates. I was scrappy and feisty and the kind of gal that older gentlemen say, you've got moxie, kid, that's me. I was, usually, I was usually scamming those old men's for a free cigar and a glass of scotch to age older than I was, but I guess that's what moxie is. So I like to party and I like to hustle. You can guess, I sold drugs. Well, really just one. I made edibles, pot brownies. Not just like a batch every now and then. I had an operation. I had people working both for me in production and sales. I had a monopoly on three college campuses. I had weed growers giving me trimmings for pennies on the, do on the dollar. And my weed dealer once <laughs> had me over to make him and his girlfriend a five-course meal out of weed butter, and then he paid me in an ounce. <sighs> and here in Denver and now, that would be fine, but in Buffalo, New York in 2009, not so much. Young, adorable drug dealers with bows in her hair, but still very much a drug dealer. <laughs> with my marijuana treats being my foot in the door, I made friends, friends up the ladder, and, and one of these friends sold shrooms in large quantities, and it just so happened I had large quantities of money since business was booming, and I went and I bought four ounces of shrooms. Four ounces of shrooms for the squares in the room. Uh, an eighth of an ounce of shrooms is plenty. In my experience, that's like enough for two, okay? So that I had bought enough for 64 trips. 64 experiences of dumb college kids being like, oh, but I really felt the colors, you know? Or like, what is money anyway? Or, How, but have you ever really listened? Like, really listened to the Beatles? <laughs> 64 trips. I figured I could spare a few, you know, to test the merchandise and uh, still could turn 100% profit and double my money. And I knew just who to call. Uh, the harshest judges of the buzz, the princes of the party, my fellow fuck-ups, two guys I knew I wouldn't have to babysit, um, Traz and his cousin Murray, you know, two guys with white, two white guys with dreadlocks. <laughs> I was living in a neighborhood on the verge of being gentrified, but it wasn't yet. Uh, and it was the kind of neighborhood that uh, I had to take taxis like half a mile because I walk around with too much cash, and it was just too darn cute, and I wanted to be a badass, but I paid for that metal bodyguard of a taxi on wheels because I was too afraid I'd need the money too bad one night and I'd get shot arguing over cash in my pocket instead of just handing it over. And we all met up there at my apartment. Uh, we each ate two grams, drank some beers, smoked some weed. They helped me divvy out the eighths uh, in exchange for free drugs, and they also agreed to be my drugged up chauffeurs for the evening, like gentlemen, gentlemen who wanted free drugs. <laughs> They started kicking in and the three of us sat there coming up, uh, coming up on drugs and talking road trips and seeing the world. And when I brought up California, they told me they'd take me and they'd take me there. And soon I looked over at Traz and I asked, are you good to drive? And he's like, yup. And Murray was having a moment with the couch. So we just laughed at him there. <laughs> 10 minutes into the drive, I realized we were in a moving vehicle and freaked out. <laughs> 
I had known Travis since I was 14, and I trusted him. Well, I trusted him in the way that I had seen him drive, like, way more fucked up than he was in the last five years. And that was, that was trust, back between party friends. You'll trust whatever will keep the party going. And we pulled over in front of the pretty mansions by Delaware Park and got out to pee. Travis peed on a house. I peed in a fountain. We called it businessman land. And when we said things we thought were clever... We got to the bar and my new friend, now my dearest and closest friend, Macintosh, he didn't like that I was tripping. He didn't like that I had gotten into a car with tripping tras, and he didn't want me to drink, so I called him a buzzkill and he left. We drove around and went back and got Murray and looked at the stars and ran through the park and drank and talked about driving to California and seeing the country until the sun came up. I remember pulling in, uh, pulling Traz's van up to my apartment. I remember knowing how fucked up I was because I noted it as being the most intoxicated I had ever been. And that's the last thing I remember. Apparently, I came home and I ate all of the shrooms. All of them. 60 trips worth of shrooms. Then I proceeded to get on my laptop on Facebook and send a group message to my ex-boyfriend from high school, my best friend, my sister, my brother, and my dad. I didn't include my mom. <laughs> the message read, I'm sorry, I love you, goodbye. That's it. Sent October 22nd, 2009 at 6, 10 a.m. My little sister's alarm to get up and get ready for school went off at 7 a.m. like every other morning. She showered, brushed her teeth, got dressed, went downstairs to make breakfast, and while she waited for her waffles in the microwave, she went on Facebook and she got the message first. My 14-year-old sister got the message first. She called my mom screaming. My mom was at the gym getting her morning workout in before she had to go teach. She told my sister I was fine and I was just being dramatic. And Tori, my sister, said, no, mom, Megan has done something. She's tried to kill herself. You have to go downtown to her apartment. You have to. Please, mom, you have to. And so she went. She banged on my apartment door for five minutes before one of my roommates sleepily answered. She burst into my bedroom door to find me non-responsive, half on my bed, half on the floor, like I had just dropped. She shook me, she screamed at me, she cried, she called 911. She screamed at my roommates, picking up the pieces of mushrooms off the floor I didn't, that didn't make it into my mouth, yelling, what are these? What are these? The ambulance got there in three minutes. I came to in the ambulance, sort of. I heard my mother saying, I hate that she's smiling. And the EMT responded, she can hear you. She just feels too good. She's in a pleasure coma. She's going to be okay. <laughs> pleasure coma. If a mother, like, ever had a good reason to hate her daughter, it was in that moment. <laughs> Scared and worried, and it just turns out her daughter's going to be fine because she's in a pleasure coma. <laughs> I never told her that part, that exchange, that I heard that. For 14 hours, I tripped balls in a hospital. But, like, medically... And I came in and out of consciousness three brief times. Uh, the first, and this is going to sound crazy, like 60 plus trips with shrooms, crazy. Uh, I woke up and I saw five people. Three were nurses, one was a doctor, one was my mom. I woke up, but I like, didn't understand language or history or context. In my mind, we had all been born right there into that moment. <laughs> right into these bodies. No one knew anything, and we were all just responsive. And I wanted to teach, you know? I wanted to teach responsiveness to gain knowledge. So I ripped all my IVs out and screamed, you know, like a shithead. They sedated me, and next time I woke up, everything was black and white. I was in a movie. The doctor and I were lovers, and we were driving a convertible down the coast to our summer home to get out of the city and reconnect, you know, fix our marriage. I passed back out. 
But last time I woke up, still tripping, uh, the room was dark and I was handcuffed to the bed. <laughs> oh yeah. The blankets were as soft as the lighting in my room and my dad's friend Sue sat next to me. I was crying and she said, people make mistakes. I asked where my family was and she said, they're having a hard time wanting to see you right now, Megan, but they didn't want you to wake up alone. I fell back asleep. The next time I woke up, oh, this one's good. I was, <laughs> I was in a hospital gown, no underwear, sitting next to my grandmother in the psych ward of ECMC Hospital. My hair was everywhere, my arms had scrapes and bruises, and my grandmother had her arm around me. She smiled, and when I woke up, she told me she loved me and to answer their questions honestly. Answer what questions? I was taken into a room where two psychologists, uh, with two psychologists, and they started, off, they started off with, Megan, why did you try to overdose and kill yourself? Jeez, buy me a drink first if you're gonna make me feel so bad about myself, I become sexually attracted to you. Kill myself? I couldn't remember anything. I couldn't remember walking into my apartment. I couldn't remember eating handful after handful of poisonous mushrooms. I couldn't remember opening my laptop and sending my family a message. I couldn't remember packing a backpack. Wait, the backpack. I told the doctors. I didn't, I didn't try to kill myself. I packed a backpack. We were going on a trip. I packed a backpack. I'd always used logic as a weapon before, and now it was my shield. It was my ticket out of the psych ward. Listen, doctor. I was just a dumb, stupid, high teenager who tripped shrooms and wanted to go on a road trip with her friends. My friends told me they were gonna drive through Canada, so I probably ate all the shrooms because I couldn't take them with me, because that makes sense. <laughs> the words left my mouth and I instantly hated myself. I hurt so many people. I scared my family, I made my dad fly across the country back home, threw my friends under a bus, all to get high and drive to an ocean because it's fun. I hurt people for fun. The doctors accepted my answer and let me go. My mom drove me back to my apartment. I showed her my backpack. She sat on the bed but didn't talk. She sat there and cried, and I watched her. Finally, she told me I wasn't allowed to talk to my sister for a while. That part hurt the most. Seven years. It's been seven years, and seven years seems so short now, because that's the funny thing about getting older. Times move quicker, and we hope for years and years to pass to create distance from our young selves and the mistakes we made. We want to be different people than the younger versions we were. Seven years just seems too close. It seems too close to be that selfish, too soon to be that cruel, too recent for everything to change, yet, I don't know, I went home, and seven years, not only has the whole thing been forgiven, but it's mostly been forgotten. Uh, the heartache, the worry, the failure, all gone. And if remembered, it's just that silly night I ate too many shrooms. And that's why dropping the ball is a sweet little phrase. You know, it describes these moments in time. It implies forgiveness. Because after all, it's just a ball, meaning it's just a game. I don't know what happened in those two hours missing of my life. And my biggest regret was not CCing my mom on Facebook Messenger suicide note, which is a weird sentence to say. <laughs> she always had my back, even when she shouldn't have had and after a few weeks when my mom come down, I asked my sister why she thought it was a suicide note. And I laughed, saying, you know me. If it was a suicide note, I would have been more theatrical about it. I would have gone out with a poetic bang. And she said, no, Megan. If you were really trying to kill yourself, if you had really given up, you would have only written three things. I'm sorry. I love you. Goodbye. Thank you, guys. That's Megan DePonso, everybody. Keep it going. Oh, my goodness. The Narrators is produced by Robert Rutherford, Mary Robertson, Aaron Rollman, and me, Ron Doyle. Our assistant producer is Sydney Crane. Our theme music is by Whalehawk. 
and our founder and executive producer is Andrew Orvidal. A very special thanks to our amazing sponsors, Illegal Pete's, Sexy Pizza, From the Hip Photo, and Renegade Brewing Company. If you haven't already, please subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast app. And join us at one of our live monthly shows, which take place every second Tuesday of the month at Tiger Tiger Tavern in San Diego, California, and every third Wednesday of the month at Bumport Theater in Denver, Colorado. Both shows start at 8 p.m. and are always free to attend. You can find us on Facebook or Twitter, and for past episodes, photos from our live shows, and a list of our upcoming events and themes, please visit thenarrators.org. Thanks for listening.